Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Today's armored-up policemen are a far cry from the constables of early America. The unrest of the 1960s brought about the invention of the SWAT unit, which in turn led to the debut of military tactics in the ranks of police officers. According to investigative reporter Radley Balco, Nixon's war on drugs, Clinton's cops program, post-9-11 security state under Bush and Obama, by degrees, each of these innovations expanded and empowered police forces, always at the expense of civil liberties. In his new book, The Rise of the Warrior Cop, The Militarization of America's Police Forces, Balco says that politicians' ill-considered policies and relentless declarations of war against vague enemies like crime, drugs, and terror have blurred the distinction between cop and soldier. He says that over a generation, a creeping battlefield mentality has isolated and alienated American police officers and put them on a collision course with the values of a free society. Radley Balco will appear at a public event. It's happening this evening at 7 at the Salt Lake City Main Library. And that event will uh, feature uh, such guests as Erna Stewart, sister of Matthew David Stewart, also uh, Dub Lawrence, former Davis County Sheriff, whose son-in-law Brian Wood was shot and killed in a uh, botched paramilitary police raid in Farmington, and uh, Melissa Kennedy, the mother of Daniel Willard, and other... um, uh, Attendees, of course, the headliner is Radley Balco, and we welcome in Radley Balco, who is in Salt Lake right now. Thank you for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Um, I wonder if you could, uh, you, you, you begin the book with a provocative question and an incident that went viral in Columbia, Missouri. That uh, that question, remind me what the question was, are, uh, are cops constitutional? And then you uh, slightly right. modify that later on. Uh, tell me about this incident in Columbia, Missouri. This was 2010, I believe. Yes, this was a raid in Columbia, Missouri, which uh, had uh, actually decriminalized marijuana. But the uh, the police had heard that uh, had gotten a tip that there was drug activity going on about this home of uh, Jonathan Whitworth and his family, and. They did what they call a trash pull, which means they can they look through the family's trash, which they can do without a warrant, uh, and they found traces of marijuana, which uh, they used to get a warrant. And they conducted this raid. It was at night. Uh, you know, it was a, a pretty standard SWAT raid, really. They used the battering ram to take down the door. They shot and killed one of the dogs. Uh, they accidentally shot another dog. Uh, they There was a child inside that they weren't aware of, uh, and they found a small amount of pot, but uh, because the drug had been decriminalized, it wasn't actually enough to uh, charge with, with, a, with a crime. Uh, I think they charged him with a, a, a paraphernalia for a pot they found near the pot. Um, but when this went viral, uh, people were outraged by what they saw. I think it rose to over 2 million YouTube views in just a couple weeks. Uh, the Columbia Police Department was you know, inundated with phone calls and emails, uh, even some death threats. Uh, and you know, somebody had been writing about this issue for a while. It struck me that, uh, you know, this was not an unusual raid. These weren't rogue cops. Uh, this wasn't. This really wouldn't even be considered a botched raid. I mean, they they got the right house. They, you know, found some drugs. Uh, and so it was almost as if, you know, a, a, the internet generation, I guess, uh, was discovering for the first time how the war on drugs is actually being fought on the ground. Uh, and you know, they were pretty alarmed and astonished by what they saw. Um, and again, you know, the, the only thing that was really unusual about this raid is the fact that it was recorded and, and the video was released. Uh, but raids just like it uh, for low-level drug offenses happen, you know, uh, around 100 to 150 times a day in this country. Uh, 
And you write that uh, commentator Charles uh, Krauthammer went on uh, television to assure viewers that this was unusual. Your point is this is not unusual. No, this is, I mean, again, this was pretty standard. Uh, and, you know, these tactics, we're seeing them, you know, the, it's really the drug war that has pushed them over the last generation or so. Uh, but in the last probably five or six years, we've seen them spread out beyond even that to uh, things like, you know, raiding poker games and uh, conducting, even conducting regulatory inspections. Um, I've written about SWAT teams that have been sent into bars so they thought there was underage drinking going on. Uh, this, you know, this sort of force, these tactics used to be reserved for emergency type situations where you've had lives at immediate risk. Um, so things like, you know, an active shooter or bank robbery or a hostage taking. Uh, and, you know, over the over 30 years or so, since basically since the late 1970s, um, the primary use for these kinds of tactics are to serve warrants on people suspected of, of uh, nonviolent consensual drug crimes. Um, th- these tactics are being used as an investigative tool. And the problem is that they're, you, when you use these tactics this way, you're actually creating violence and confrontation where there was none before uh, instead of using these tactics to defuse a situation that's already violent. Where does, uh, I assume you're familiar with the case of Matthew David Stewart in, in Ogden. Yep. Um, where does this fit in? This, And I think this is an interesting case of where, uh, as I read public opinion, uh, public opinion... I, I think you could say majority is still at this point on the side of the police in this in this raid. But uh, Matthew David Stewart, of course, uh, in his house, the police come in and in type of raid that you're describing. Um, mm-hmm. Matthew David Stewart uh, opens fire. Uh, of course, he's fired upon as well. He injures uh, five policemen, kills one. Uh, he later on uh, apparently hanged himself in his in his cell. Uh, where does this fit in? Is this, this typical? Atypical? Yeah, well, I mean, it's, um just to address the public opinion issue, I mean, to be honest, I mean, reading the, the comments to the um, uh, the newspaper articles about the local articles about this case, um, I've actually been struck by how uh, skeptical they are of the police tactics that were used. Uh, now, I haven't seen any polls, and obviously, uh, internet commenters aren't uh, a, a good sampling, I guess, of, of the public at large. But um, I mean, I think I think there's been much more public questioning and criticism of this case than I've seen in similar cases that you know that I've. Uh, read and covered. Um, but this case was, was you know, very typical. Uh, now, the Ogden police will say that this was not a SWAT team, that this was a drug, uh, I think they call it a drug task, a drug strike force. Uh, but they did use a battering ram. You know, they, they broke into the place uh, after dark. Uh, and, you know, the police had guns, and this was, I mean, this was a home invasion. And you know, the thing was, there are a couple things that I, I, I think, you know, make this troubling and typical. Um, one is that, you know, this guy was growing plants. Uh, you know, this was not, uh, there's no reason to break into his home uh, this way. He wasn't, you know, in threatening anyone's life. Uh, there were no, uh, you know, there's no immediate threat to public safety. Uh, in fact, they had no evidence that he was even, you know, dealing or distributing. By all accounts, he was growing this stuff for himself. Uh, so the idea that, you know, you had to use a battering ram and break into this guy's house with, with you know, a team of armed cops uh, after night while he was asleep, uh, you know, I think is uh, needlessly, again, needlessly confrontational. And, you know, there's a very thin margin for error in these kinds of situations. If either side, you know, makes a mistake, if the person being raided mistakes the cops for criminal intruders, as appears to have been the case here, uh, or if the police make a mistake, which happens pretty frequently, a, you know, a cop mistakes a uh a T-shirt or the glint off a wristwatch for a gun, 
which both of those things have happened. Um, you know, you get the tragic outcomes like we saw here. Uh, the other thing is, I mean, they knew that this guy worked at Walmart. Um, you know, it would have been very easy to pick him up as he was coming or leaving work and, uh, you know, make enter his home when they knew he wasn't going to be there. Uh, and that would have, again, avoided this kind of confrontation. Uh, but there seems to be almost a, a desire to use these kinds of, uh, you know, highly volatile confrontational tactics, even when, you know, a less violent means of arrest uh, could have been pulled off pretty easily. There's You write in your book that uh, the police departments are incentivized, aren't they? The, the, the money flows to uh, setting up drug task force and uh, SWAT teams and the like. It's federal money. Right. There's uh, Well, there's federal equipment that comes through. Uh, for about 30 years, the Pentagon has been giving away uh, surplus military equipment to police departments across the country. We're talking guns and you know armored personnel carriers and tanks and helicopters. Uh, and then... Uh, DHS has been giving out grants, anti-terror grants, to buy the same sort of equipment uh, since 2001, or actually since 2003, I guess. Uh, and then on top of it, you have these grants that are solely tied to drug policing. Uh, and in some cases, they go to set up these multi-jurisdictional task forces. In some cases, they go to you know existing police departments, uh, drug teams, narcotics teams. Uh, but the point here is that you've got, you know, you're giving away all this military-type equipment, which uh, the police departments can use to start their SWAT teams, uh, and then you are incentivizing them to, you know, you have your SWAT team now, you're a police chief or a sheriff, and you have your SWAT team. You can keep your SWAT team in reserve and wait for one of these emergency sorts of situations that SWAT teams were basically invented for, uh, or you can start sending your SWAT team out to serve drug warrants, uh, which are tied to federal funding, and now you know using your SWAT team for these, uh, uh, you know, relatively low-level uh, drug crimes can actually generate revenue for your police department. Uh, and so there's, yeah, the, I think the federal government has really uh, driven this trend toward, uh, you know, more the use of SWAT teams uh, for drug investigations, uh, and really kind of an explosion in both the number of SWAT teams across the country and the use of them. And you write that uh, perhaps the most I don't know, deleterious effect of, of all this, and we'll get into some of the history, very fascinating history of, of the development of police forces and, uh, and policing. But uh, one of the worst developments here, you write, is a development of a mindset, military mindset. It's an us-versus-them mindset that, that policemen increasingly have. Yeah, and this is, I mean, this is not, I mean, I don't have law enforcement experience. This is the result of, uh, you know, interviews of uh, numerous uh, police chiefs and uh, retired police officers that I talked to in researching the book. Uh, and, you know, a lot of the older cops are worried about this mindset, what they call the mindset problem or the, you know, the new breed or the new generation. Uh, and there is a, uh, yeah, there is a very sort of us versus them mentality, I think, in too many police departments. And, you know, I mean, it, it sort of makes sense, right? If, if, you know, for 20 years, 30 years, we've been, uh, giving cops military equipment, uh, dressing them in increasingly you know, military-like uniforms, training them in military tactics, uh, and then telling them they're fighting various wars, uh, it only makes sense that a cop would start to adopt uh, the, ma- the mindset and outlook uh, of a soldier. Uh, and one thing I talk about in the book that I think you really see this point illustrated, if you look at the police re- recruiting videos that police departments send to high schools and colleges uh, to recruit new police officers, uh, you know, a disturbing uh, number of them feature images of cops, you know, 
rappelling out of helicopters and tackling people and shooting and sicking dogs on people and kicking down doors. Uh, and it's all the, you know, kind of, um, you know, kicking butt and taking names aspects of the job that are emphasized. Uh, very little of the, you know, uh, community service, public service parts of the job are emphasized. And, you know, it's done to sort of some sort of heavy metal music or guitars blaring in the background. And, you know, this is the very first step in the process, and they're appealing to people who look at those images and say, you know, that's what I want to do for a living. Uh, and I think it, you know, the, I think that really, when I saw those some of those videos, it really kind of illustrated, I think, the point that uh, we're actually seeking out people who want a job where this is going to be what, they're, what, what they'll be doing most of the time. Uh, and I think that's, you know, kind of emblematic of the problem. And then some policemen who uh, who don't want to, to live under this mindset are, are probably leaving the force. That's right. They're retiring. Or, and, I, and I can tell you, I mean, since the book came out, uh, I've gotten probably a couple dozen emails from uh, police officers who agree with what the general tone of the book and, and what's happening with policing in America, uh, but who say, you know, there's nothing they're frustrated uh, with their jobs, and, but there's nothing really they can do about it because if they speak out, uh, it's going to hurt their careers. Uh, and of course, you know, if, you're, if your goal is to uh, change these trends and change this mindset and change the policies, uh, you know, speaking out early in your career is probably not the way to do it because mm-hmm. you're, you're not going to remain in the, in the police department for very long. Uh, so there is, I mean, there are, this is not a, uh, you know, the, there are voices of dissent, I guess, within police organizations, but they're kind of afraid to speak out, which, you know, the very fact that they're afraid to speak out, I think also says something about the, you know, the state of policing today. I wonder if you tell me about, I was very struck by this, uh, an anecdote, I can't remember which chapter this is, but uh, I, I don't have the first name. The last name is Taylor. This is a policewoman. And yep. uh, she was involved, I guess at some point she uh, she joined the SWAT team and, and she had a seminal experience which uh, changed the course of her career. I wonder if you could tell us about that. A, a, a raid, and she had this experience with this little girl. Yeah, so this is uh, Betty Taylor, who uh, went on to become a sheriff at a small uh, in a small town in Missouri. But earlier in her career, she worked. Uh, she basically started up a sex crimes unit within a rural the police department police department in Missouri. Uh, and but because she was the only woman on the force, they brought her along on the SWAT raids uh, in case there were children. And her her job basically was after the raid went down, she was supposed to go in and basically comfort the children until another family member could be contacted or, or child services could be contacted to, you know, come take the children away. Uh, and oh, I'm sorry, my phone is ringing here. I think that's probably uh, us. So she, of... um, so she talked about this moment that really kind of changed her outlook on policing and, and uh, the drug war really in general, uh, where she was on one of these raids. And, you know, it's a, basically the raid was precipitated by a, uh, a low-level drug buy that an undercover police officer had made from the stepfather of these two children. And, you know, they could have arrested him then and there after they made the buy. Instead, they wait and they decide they're going to raid the house. Uh, and so the SWAT king team comes in and they raid the place. Uh, and it turns out that the suspect actually wasn't there at the time. Uh, so they raided the mother and her two children. Uh, and, you know, after the SWAT team did its thing, Taylor goes in and she sees this uh, little girl and her brother in a back bedroom. And Taylor's wearing, you know, her full SWAT gear. And she says she walks into the room, and the girl immediately assumed a defensive, kind of a fighting stance. Uh, and she said, what are you going to do to us? And, you know, Taylor told me that this was just crushing to her, that 
you know, she went into policing to help people, and this is why she started the sex crimes unit. Uh, and here she was, you know, in this house over a relatively low-level crime that, you know, these children were in no way responsible for. And, you know, she was she had terrified these kids, and this girl, this little girl's first reaction was to, to fight her. Uh, and, you know, she said she it really changed the way she looked at how these kinds of tactics were used. Uh, and she said she, she talked to the girl uh, several years later, 10, I guess 10 or 15 years later, and, um, you know, the girl said that was a defining moment of her life, that, you know, she and her brother had to sleep in the same bed until he, the little boy was, I think it was 11 or 12, because he was so terrified. Um, and, you know, this was something that the girl would always remember, uh, you know, the, the, that time. And, and, you know, Taylor said they found, I think she said they found a couple of joints and a, and a pipe in the house. Uh, and, you know, she had just made her kind of reflect on the use of this kind of force and what it's, what kinds of crimes it's being used uh, to to uh, police. And, you know, it, it made her kind of realize that you know, what they were doing was inappropriate. And, of course, it wasn't, you know, it's not as if these SWAT raids are actually affecting uh, the drug supply in any case. And you quote Betty Taylor saying, good police work has nothing to do with dressing up in black and breaking into homes in the middle of the night. She also says the mentality changes when you get put on a SWAT team. Yeah, and I, I heard this from a lot of uh, the police officers I interviewed for the book, that when you get on the SWAT team, you you have you do take a much more kind of aggressive uh, attitude and uh, one of the fascinating things I, I found was the SWAT, the police officers I talked to who had served on SWAT teams, the adjectives that they used to describe the experience of one of these raids were very similar to the adjectives that we would use to describe the effects of the drugs that these raids were, you know, being conducted to confiscate. Uh, you know, they would say that SWAT raids are exhilarating and intoxicating, and, you know, there was a huge adrenaline rush. Um, and, you know, the one police chief actually had one of the more amusing anecdotes, and then didn't make it into the book, but he said, you know, he was resisting. His town council was telling him to start a SWAT team. This was a, a sheriff in a small town, uh, and he didn't want a SWAT team, but they basically told him he had to start one. So he said he held a department-wide meeting uh, and asked for volunteers for the SWAT team, uh, and he said he wrote down everyone's name who volunteered uh, and basically said that as long as he was sheriff, it would he would make sure... Uh, that the people who volunteered would never serve on the SWAT team. Uh, he said the guys who want to be on the SWAT team are the last people you actually want on it, uh, which I thought was interesting. Um, but, you know, I, I mean, I do want to emphasize here that I'm not, uh, there is an appropriate time and use and place for SWAT teams. I mean, I think that, again, when you are, uh, when you have somebody who presents an immediate threat to the lives of other people, um, you know, swift, overwhelming violence to, you know, uh, kind of uh, overtake the situation and, and uh, protect lives uh, is a perfectly legitimate use of this kind of force. And, and SWAT teams perform marvelous, marvelously in those kinds of situations. Uh, I think, you know, the objection is my objection, and you know, a lot of the former police officers I talked to, uh, their objection is that this kind of force and violence is being used in situations where it's just not commensurate with the threat, uh, and it's actually uh, creating danger volatility uh, instead of, you know, trying to diffuse it. If you just joined us, we're talking with Radley Balco. He's an investigative journalist. He's author of a new book, The Rise of the Warrior Cop, The Militarization of America's Police Forces. 
He says politicians ill-considered policies and relentless declarations of war against vague enemies like crime, drugs, and terror have blurred the distinction between cop and soldier. And he says that over a generation, a creeping battlefield mentality has isolated and alienated American police officers and put them on a collision course with the values of a free society. Radley Bellica will headline a public event at the Salt Lake City Main Library. That's this evening at 7 o'clock. Attending that event will be uh, Ernest Stewart, sister of Matthew David Stewart. Also, uh, Melissa Kennedy, mother of Danielle Willard, and other guests. They'll be uh, seeking changes to those policies. Um, and we have more, of course, with Radley Balco, and you can join the program. I hope that you will. Perhaps you have an experience, you have an opinion, agree or disagree. We'd love to hear from you. 1-800-826-1495 is the number, 1-800-826-1495. You can join us on email, upraxis at gmail.com, upraxis at gmail.com, or on our Utah Public Radio Facebook page. More following the break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Life Directions Coaching of Logan with Coach Pam King. The Goal Getters Group begins September 17th. Participants will identify and strengthen personal resources for accomplishing important goals. Information is at lifedirectionscoaching.com. Before summer ends, clear out your garage and donate the vehicle you no longer need to Utah Public Radio. Just call 877-877-7501 or donate securely online at upr.org and we'll take care of everything. From picking up your vehicle to sending you all of the needed paperwork, just call 877-877-7501 or donate securely online at upr.org programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the College of Science at Utah State University, where graduates' acceptance rates to medical, dental, and graduate schools exceed national averages. When students and faculty learn together, discovery follows. Information at usu.edu science. Access Utah. We are talking about the militarization of America's police forces. That's the subtitle of a book by Radley Balco. It's uh, called The Rise of the Warrior Cop. Today's armored up policemen are a far cry from the constables of early America, he says. And the unrest of the 1960s brought about the invention of the SWAT unit, which in turn led to the de- debut of military tactics in the ranks of police officers. And according to uh, Balco, the uh, War on drugs, the COPS program, post-9-11 security state under Bush and Obama. By degrees, each of these innovations expanded and empowered police forces, always at the expense of civil liberties. Radley Balco joins us from Salt Lake. He's going to headline an event this evening at the Salt Lake City Main Library. That's at 7 o'clock and will feature uh, several people who have stories to tell, including Ernest Stewart, sister of Matthew David Stewart, and Melissa Kennedy, mother of Danielle Willard. That's uh, 7 o'clock this evening, Salt Lake City Main Library. Radley Balco uh, joins us here. Radley Balco, I um, assume you're also familiar with the story of uh, Daniel Willard and the whole shakeup of the West Valley City Police Department. Uh, I'm not quite as familiar with that one as I am with the Stewart case, uh, but I have read a couple stories about the West Valley um, Department, including the, I think there's a, another lawsuit uh, against uh, them about another raid. Um, I've been in the process of, of trying to 
do a little more research into what's uh, been happening here at Utah. But I haven't, I'm not familiar with all the details of the Willard case, I guess. And uh, Daniel Willard was uh, shot and killed. She was unarmed uh, by uh, the determination that uh, two West Valley State drug detectives were uh, uh, at fault for, for that. And um, and then there were some, some other in, improper improprieties uh, with the with the drug unit and uh, the big shakeup. They got a new police chief now and and uh, hopefully things will, will get better there. But to these drug units, I guess SWAT teams. Uh, the, uh, this was the car, right? She was shot in, in her car. I, I right? believe so. Yeah. And this is, I mean, this is, you know, a, I think a kind of a, a problem we're seeing independent of the, the home invasions, which is this idea of kind of police jumping out on automobiles uh, and then, you know, shooting at people uh, when they try to flee. Uh, I wrote about a case a couple of years ago in Georgia, this pastor, Jonathan Ayers, who um, the police were actually following a, um, a a prostitute who they suspected of drug activity. And Ayers was a pastor who had actually gone to minister to her. Um, lit- I mean, you know, not, uh, <laughs> I don't mean that figuratively. Uh, and the police, you know, suddenly saw that she was talking to this, uh, you know, sort of middle class looking uh, white person. Uh, and they started following him instead. And they followed him to a, a, a convenience store. And what in fact had happened, he just loaned her the money in his wallet to help her pay her rent, uh, and he'd gone to the convenience store to get money from an ATM, uh, and he comes out to get in his car, and a SUV pulls up, and they sort of, again, jump out on the car, and as he leaves, they open fire uh, and kill him. And, you know, this is um, these, again, this kind of everything has to be sort of violent and surprising and uh, kind of military-like. It leads to tragic consequences. We uh, believe we have a caller, uh, Charles in Arizona. Charles, are you there? Yes, I am. Um, appreciate your calling. Go ahead with your question or comment. Well, I have a comment and a question. Uh, yeah, go ahead. Okay, my comment is uh, about 25 years ago, I was at a funeral of my wife's grandfather, and the uh, head administrator for the California Highway Patrol was there. Uh, he was uh, he was an administrator in the 60s and the 70s, and I pulled him beside I pulled him aside and asked him a question about what is going on in our police forces nowadays, because I had seen what your what your guest is uh, talking about. His book is about about 30 years ago. I started I started seeing it creeping up into our society, and so he said, you know, they're not trained like they used to be, Charles. They're, they're trained now that you are the enemy, and therefore they treat you like that. Now, you know, they try to be respectful and all that at first, but a story I have for you is uh, I have a daughter that has some substance abuse issues. My wife was on the phone one night, and I thought she was calling 911. So I went out to the living room, and I was listening to her conversation, so I went back to my room, and I called 911 myself, and I told them, uh, you know, please don't send the police. The daughter's not here right now. There's nothing going on. She's just upset at the daughter, there's no reason for you to send the police over. Well, before I could get off the phone, knock, knock, knock on the door. And she says, oh, that's my officers, please open the door. So I'm like, well, okay, I, I thought I asked you not to send them, but you know, thank you very much. And I got off the phone, I answered the door. The officers, three of them step in the house and they're asking what's going on. And then the last statement they said, if we come back here this evening, everyone in this home is going to jail. Well, no one had done anything and the daughter was gone. So I didn't understand that. but. At that point when they left, I told my wife, I said, you know what, I'm leaving. I'm not staying here 
because I know our daughter, she's going to come back, she's going to start trouble, you're going to call 911, and then we're all going to go to jail, and I'm not going to jail. Well, anyways, I left. I went down the road a couple miles, sleeping in my car. I was awakened about 4 a.m. in the morning from my uh, daughter that was her sister's little sister. She uh, came up to Tucson and started trouble with Karina about giving my wife problems. They got in a fight. Karina called 911. Here come the police, right? Well, anyways, they all took off. I get, like I said, awoken at 4 a.m. I go home. I go in the house. It's totally black. I looked in rooms. No one was there. I go in my room, and there's my oldest daughter standing in my room. And I said, what's going on? And she goes, well, Dad, uh, Karina came up. I mean, Charity came up. They got in a fight. She called 911, and the police are on their way. I'm like, oh, man, I got to go. So I go to exit my home. And boom, boom, boom on the door before I could get out the door. Well, long story short, they they would not leave. They kept pounding on the door. And then finally they broke a window, came in through a window, and arrested me. And I did nine days in jail. Hmm. Uh, so what's your question? Well, I mean, it, you know, what, what can a person do about that? Yeah. I mean, it, yeah. it's very aggressive to me. Um, I don't understand. You know, I'm, I'm 54 years old. I was taught that, you know... I dedicated myself to this country. I pledged my allegiance to it. Um, I uh, basically, you know, I go by every law there is. I walk a straight line, you know. And for people to come in my home like that and, and treat me like that, I, I feel like I'm in a foreign nation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank, thanks for that, uh, that story. Appreciate you uh, giving us that. Yeah, you're welcome. Uh, so, uh, Radley Balco, what do you think of that? Well, I, I, I don't, I can't comment on the story itself, I guess, but the... You know, I don't think it's so much the cops are explicitly told to see everyone as an enemy. I think it's 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 more subtle than that, but it has the same effect. Um, you know, policing has actually been getting safer since the mid-1990s. In fact, last year was the safest year for police officers uh, since the early 60s. And the But cops are continually told that their job is, how dangerous their job is, and that every interaction with a citizen could be their last um, there's a uh, kind of an informal motto that I think has taken hold in a lot of police communities, which is uh, whatever I need to do to get home at night. Uh, and so there's this, you know, there is this idea. I mean, if you're, if you're constantly told that every interaction with a citizen could be your last, uh, you're going to start to see citizens as potential threats and not as, as you know, people with rights. And I think that's uh, the training is a, is a big part of it and sort of what they're told from day to day. We're talking with Radley Balco, who is author of the new book, The Rise of the Warrior Cop, The Militarization of America's Police Forces. And uh, he is headlining an event this evening at the Salt Lake City Main Library. It's at 7 o'clock, talking about these issues, and includes Ernest Stewart, uh, sister of Matthew David Stewart and uh, Melissa Kennedy, mother of Danielle Willard, and other guests, including, of course, uh, Radley Balco. Radley Balco, for the hour, you're welcome to join the conversation with your story, your comment, your question. We'd love to have you on, 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495. You can join us by email at upraxis at gmail.com, upraxis at gmail.com, or you can join us on our Utah Public Radio Facebook page. We do have a Facebook uh, comment. I'll get to that later. I want to get to our caller next, Bettina in Springdale. Bettina, welcome to the program. Yes, I just have one question. How do we protect ourselves from our protectors? Yeah, that's a that's a good question. Uh, that that's that's a you know a difficult question to to answer. I mean, I think there are I make a number of policy recommendations in the book, um, but in terms of you know 
in specific cases, um, I guess the first thing I would say is, you know, the odds of you being raided are slim, very, 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 very slim. Um, you know, as, long, as often as it does happen, you know, there are also a lot of people in this country. Um, but in terms of what you should do if you are raided, uh, would be, my advice would be to completely and utterly submit. Um, you know, you don't want anything in your hands. You do everything they say. Uh, the time to, you know, put up resistance and complain about the tactics is later, you know, possibly in court, uh, but not as the rate is going down or, you know, you're going to put yourself in unnecessary danger. Um, but, you know, in terms of policy recommendations, I mean, I think a big part of it is, is uh, you know, reining in the use of these tactics. There really hasn't, I mean, p police militarization uh, has been happening gradually, you know, over a couple generations. There, there was never, you know, Congress never took a vote that said tomorrow we're going to militarize the police. Uh, so, the, you know, we need to have a debate and discussion about when this kind of force and when these sorts of tactics are appropriate um, and, you know, and, the, and talk about the laws and the policies that got us here. Uh, and that's, you know, I mean, that's one of the goals of the book. And it's, you know, I, I'm heartened to see that it's actually happening here in Utah. I mean, we just saw an article in the paper yesterday about uh, the fact that several members of the legislature are now considering, you know, proposals to look at, you know, how we can uh, put better guidelines on when the use of these kinds of tactics are appropriate and when they aren't. Uh, and I think that's a discussion that's long overdue. Thanks, Bettina. You're we welcome. We appreciate the question. In fact, uh, Bettina's question uh, heads up one of your chapters. This is juvenile in Rome. Uh, some of these issues go by, way back. Right. Uh, and, you know, in the research of the book, I found, you know, that the first, uh, the very first police force, organized centralized police force, was in uh, ancient Rome uh, shortly after Octavian uh, took over as the first emperor. And what was fascinating was that he had to na na uh, navigate some of the same uh, concerns and, and uh, issues that, you know, we're talking about today, which is, there were, you know, he pulled his police force from uh, his army, and so there was a lot of concern. You know, Rome had had this historical aversion to standing armies. In fact, uh, the army was not allowed uh, in, the, in the perimeters of Rome. When, when Caesar crossed the Rubicon, that was, you know, the point of no return, because not because he couldn't get back, back across the river, but because uh, once you brought your army into the, the, the city of Rome, you were, it was seen as a hostile act. Uh, but, you know, Octavian had to, you know, even when he put the set up this organized police force, he had them wear togas, not their army uniforms. And, uh, you know, there were, he had them, uh, they were, their pay was kept separate from the military pay. And like, he, you know, he took these, uh, precautions to, to try to assuage the concerns that he was setting up this standing army within the city. Uh, and so I think it's telling, I mean, even the very first, uh, police organized police force that we know of in recorded history had to, had to look at these same issues. We're going to take another break. We're talking with uh, Radley Balco, author of The Rise of the Warrior Cop, The Militarization of America's Police Forces. Radley Balco says, uh, Our uh, declarations of war against vague enemies like crime, drugs, and terror blurred the distinction between cop and soldier. Very different from colonial America when the uh, Constitution and the amendments were instituted. He's very concerned about amendments four and three. We'll talk about those. Uh, and the Castle Doctrine. I think Charles in Arizona was articulating his understanding of the Castle Doctrine and his concern there. We'll talk about that following the break. Coming up on the next Bluegrass Breakdown, we'll be heading back to the spring and early summer of 1973, when, among other things, Hubert Davis and the seasoned travelers begin a long stint as a house band at Nashville's Bluegrass Inn, the Newgrass Revival tours with Leon Russell, and Clarence White 
was killed by a drunken driver. I'm Dave Higgs, and it'll be nothing but four-decade-old hang on some goodies on the next Bluegrass Breakdown. Saturdays at 10. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Crumb Brothers Artisan Bread at 300 South and 300 West in Logan, now open Monday through Saturday until 2, with a changing menu of a specialty salad, French breakfast pastries, with local seasonal fruits, and lunch sandwiches. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We have uh, another uh, 15 minutes left with Radley Balco. You're welcome to join this conversation. The book is uh, The Rise of the Warrior Cop, Militarization of America's Police Forces. Radley Balco is in Salt Lake City. He'll be headlining an event this evening at 7 o'clock at the Salt Lake City Main Library. And uh, they're trying to find some solutions to some of the problems uh, outlined by Mr. Balco in his book. They're calling for disbanding of paramilitary drug units, as well as uh, criminal charges being brought against police who shot and killed Daniel Willard. Some of the uh, uh, demands that they're uh, making at that uh, will be making at that event, and uh, Radley Balco will be listening to some of these stories, including Ernest Stewart's, whose sister Matthew David Stewart and uh, Melissa Kennedy will be in town. She's the mother of Daniel Willard. Um, and we're talking about these issues on the program today. You're welcome to join us. We hope that you will. 1-800-826-1495. Agree or disagree with what Mr. Balco was saying. Maybe you have a story. 1-800-826-1495. Or you can join us by email at uh, upraxis at gmail.com. Upraxis at uh, gmail.com. Let's uh, begin with a couple of comments from uh, Steve in uh, Arizona. Uh, He writes on our Facebook page. You can comment there, by the way. He says, very glad you have Mr. Balco on this morning. This really is an important and very, very troubling development in post-9-11 American society. And then uh, Steve writes in on email. He says, a minor correction about Caesar in Rome. Caesar was only the fourth general to have crossed the Rubicon and brought his army to Rome. Before he did so, Sulla, Crassus, and Pompey had all done the same thing. So some minor corrections about our Roman history. Uh, thanks for those comments, uh, Steve. Uh, I'd like to talk a little bit about uh, c- contrasting, as you do, uh, Mr. Balco, um, colonial America and concerns about a standing army and uh, this idea of the castle doctrine. I wonder if you could articulate those. And then you compare and contrast that to uh, the militarization of the police forces today. Yeah, well, so, you know, at the, at the time of the founding, <clears throat> police uh, departments or, I guess, police forces as they exist today um, didn't exist. Um, crime was largely uh, a private matter. Uh, we had constables and sheriffs uh, and some federal marshals, but uh, their duties were largely administrative. Um, and, you know, if you had a, a, a beef against someone, you uh, made your own case as your own prosecutor to a grand jury uh, and, you know, who were also made up of citizens who would then, you know, decide whether to issue an indictment. Um, so the founding fathers didn't even really, you know, have police or have any experience with organized, centralized police departments. Um, but they did know about standing armies, and internal standing armies in particular were what they were worried about. Uh, and they saw what happened in Rome, actually, when the Praetorian Guard, the, that first centralized police force, uh, eventually became the most powerful faction in Rome, uh, and the, you know the entire civilization and society. Uh, became consumed with kind of a culture of militarism. This had happened throughout uh, the other parts of continental Europe as well. Uh, And, of course, they had their own experience with this. When the British uh, stationed troops in Boston uh, in the mid-1700s, mid to late 1700s, to uh, enforce the tax and import laws, uh, you know, the troops had 
these general warrants uh, called writs of assistance, which these broad, uh, non-specific warrants that let them basically break into houses at any time. Actually, uh, at any time, you know, of course, over, the, over a calendar year, uh, they were actually barred from doing raids at night, uh, which makes them a little different than how raids are done today. Even, uh, but they had these broad, this broad authority to break into houses to look for contraband, and uh, you know, they were stationed in the streets of Boston to do routine sort of day-to-day law enforcement. And this led to a lot of uh, clashes with the with Bostonians and, and really is one of the reasons why Boston became such a, a hub of uh, revolutionary, uh, you know, fervor. And this all culminated, of course, with the Boston Massacre, which uh, was really the precipitating event for the American Revolution. Uh, and so they, the founders were aware of this and they, uh, you know, the, the the history in Boston was still fresh in their minds when they were crafting the Constitution. And, you know, they did eventually agree that we need a standing army, or at least the, the ability of Congress to commission an army for, you know, to, to repel outside threats. But they were, you know, worried about this, uh, you know, having um, soldiers sort of stationed internally and among the citizenry uh, and the problems that that would create. And so, you know, the, we have the Fourth Amendment, which requires warrants to be very specific and really limits the power of, of the government to issue these kinds of broad warrants. Uh, we also have the Third Amendment, which I argue in the book, uh, you know, it, it, well, let me back up. The Third Amendment, you know, isn't really talked about all that much. And, and specifically, it, it bars the quartering of troops in homes uh, during wartime without congressional authorization. But the historical research suggests that the Third Amendment is kind of a placeholder for this larger aversion to militarism and, uh, you know, having uh, uh, standing armies positioned in the streets and among and billeted among the citizenry. Uh, and then, as you mentioned, the Castle Doctrine, I think, is kind of part of both amendments. Uh, and it's this really age-old, you know, goes back to even ancient Rome, ancient Greece, idea that uh, the home should be a place of peace and sanctuary and that, you know, it should only be, the government should only be permitted to violate uh, the threshold of the home uh, in ex- very, very extreme circumstances. And even then, only after announcing, you know, the government's men, uh, the king's men, uh, announce themselves in their presence uh, and their purpose. Uh, and so, you know, all these principles, I think, were kind of, you know, a, a, a a critical part of the, or, or critical, critical among the principles that animated the, the American founding, and I think they're all, you know, in jeopardy right now. I think this idea that you know police can, the government can send armed men into your home uh, in the middle of the night to uh, basically, you know, enforce nonviolent uh, laws against nonviolent consensual consensual activities uh, really violates uh, at least the spirit of all these principles, and in some cases, I think it, it violates them pretty directly. Let me uh, finish Steve's comment on our Facebook page. I, I left off a paragraph. Apologize about Steve. He, so to remind you of the first paragraph, very glad you have Mr. Balk on this morning. The re, re, this really is an important, very, very troubling development in post-9-11 American society. He goes on, perhaps you discussed this before I tuned in, but it's my understanding that one of the most important ways in which both the Bush and Obama administrations have promoted this trend is by giving police departments surplus war equipment from Iraq and uh, Afghanistan. Well, this is yeah. The, well, the Pentagon's been giving away surplus equipment since the late 1980s, uh, and the process was formalized in the 1990s with what's called the 1033 program, which actually set, an, set up an office to distribute this stuff. And I mean, we're talking literally millions of pieces of equipment that was designed for use on a battlefield, uh, being given to domestic police agencies for use on American streets and in American uh, neighborhoods. Uh, 
you know, and you compound that then with these, the DHS program, which was started in 2003, uh, and these are grants that are given to police departments uh, ostensibly to fight terrorism, but they're, you know, they're going to places like Fond du Lac, Wisconsin, and Tuscaloosa, Alabama, and they're being used to buy armored personnel carriers and guns and, you know, tanks and helicopters and so forth. Uh, and, you know, inevitably when those kinds of places aren't, don't succumb to al-Qaeda attacks, uh, that equipment gets used for much more mundane, regular sorts of policing. And, you know, the, the, the particularly, I think, troubling thing about these DHS grants is that, you know, at least with the Pentagon giveaway program, this was equipment that already exists. And, you know, it's surplus. It's sitting in a warehouse somewhere. These DHS grants are going to buy new equipment. And this has given rise to a cottage industry of companies that basically, you know, have sprung up to cash these DHS grants in exchange uh, for building and supplying this military equipment. And, you know, inevitably, this industry is going to open up lobbying offices in Washington. In fact, I'm, I'm sure they have already uh, to make sure that these programs continue and expand. And now, you know, the whole system is sort of feeding off of itself. Uh, and you have what you might call the police industrial complex, uh, you know, the, maybe the little brother of the military industrial complex. Uh, and once that's up and running, you know, it's going to be very difficult to, um, you know, even keep this program from growing, much less, you know, roll it back or eliminate it altogether. We just have a couple of minutes left. I uh, want to end the program with, with solutions. You have a chapter on, on solutions. Maybe since we don't have much time, uh, what's, what's, what's top on your list? What do you think uh, would be most effective? Um, well, the most effective is probably the least likely to happen, which is to uh, end the federal drug war, uh, or at least you know, end this idea of, the, of, of fighting it as a war. Um, but, you know, I think kind of a broader solution that I think we should, community should look at is this idea of community policing. And I think cops have become too psychologically isolated from the communities they serve. And it's, it's both the rhetoric and the, the gear and the tactics, but it's also just um, the style of policing that, you know, police are in their squad cars most of the day and they only really, you know, get out and interact with people when there's a problem or a confrontation. And so community policing is this idea that, you know, police officers should, should consider themselves part of the communities that they they serve and that they patrol. Um, you know they should walk beats and know the names of the principals of the schools on their beats and uh, and really you know in, ingrain themselves in these communities, live in them preferably. Uh, and so that when it does then come time to use force, uh, one you know the officer's going to be see it as he's using force you know to protect people that he's serving, which is going to make it much less likely to use force when it isn't appropriate. And two, the community is going to see this, the officer as one of their own, protecting them, not you know, this outside entity that's sort of been imposed upon them. And so I think community policing, um, when it's done at the local level, uh, is valuable and, and would you know, go a long way to kind of reversing this trend. Um, I will say the community policing grants that the federal government has handing out um, aren't all that productive, mostly because there's no oversight. Uh, in fact, a lot of them uh, have been used to start SWAT teams, which is sort of the opposite of community policing. Um, but this general idea, I think, is an important one uh, of, of, you know, police returning to the idea that, uh, you know, they are they are citizens like anyone else uh, and that, you know, they're, they're here to serve citizens and, and to keep the peace. Radley Balco, investigative journalist and author of the book, which we've been talking about, uh, which is The Rise of the Warrior Cop, The Militarization of America's Police Forces. That's out now. Radley Balco is headlining a public event at the Salt Lake City Main Library this evening at 7, which will also include uh, Ernest Stewart, sister of Matthew David Stewart, and Melissa Kennedy, mother of Daniel Willard. Um, Radley Balco, thank you so much. 
Thanks for having me on. And uh, join us tomorrow, uh, Sherry Quinn, talk about air quality and environmental issues with Jim Goodwin. And uh, then on uh, Tuesday, following the Labor Day weekend, uh, we've been talking about Senator Aaron Osmond's uh, proposal to end compulsory education. We're going to have the senator on as we continue our discussion on K-12 through education, and that is on Tuesday. Uh, for uh, producer Bennett Purser, I'm Tom Williams. Thanks for listening today. Utah Public Radio presents StoryCorps, an oral history project in conjunction with the National Library of Congress, recorded in May of 2013 in St. George. My name is Daniel Dalton MacArthur. I'm 65 years old, and we're here in St. George, Utah, my hometown, and I'm here with my wife, Bunny. My name is Bunny K. Ridd MacArthur, and I'm 61. Came down to Dixie College on a scholarship and met Danny. <laughs> you know, I was born and raised here. Uh, I went to Dixie College, uh, became the ex-club president, and uh, that's where I met Bunny. Some of Danny's friends were dating some of my roommates, and so they wanted him to get a date so they could go. They wanted to go up to the Lions Club to a dance, and they talked him into asking me to go on the date. She was very young looking, as she is today. The next day, uh, I decided that I would pick her up in my 1966 two-door Chevrolet. And I says, would you like a ride to school, the two blocks? And uh, she said yes, and her and her girlfriends crawled in the car. She snagged her nylons on my car, and we've been hooked ever since. That's (laughs) That's the story, and we're sticking to it. (laughs) It's it's, the truth. (laughs) It's true. We had six children, and our first one, uh, Bunny, was affected uh, with RH. Uh, She she had RH negative blood. I'm RH positive, which we were. She was sensitized, and we were not able to get the railgun shot quick enough that she got sensitized. And so all the rest of our children uh, were were miracle babies, really. Yeah, when Jeff was born in Provo, yeah, he was born three weeks early, and we didn't know anything was wrong, but they said, did you see anything different about your baby? And uh, I said, no, I really didn't. Well, didn't you see all those spots on him, and he was really yellow? Well, I hadn't seen that many babies, so no. Well, you need to come down and visit with your wife. So we went down and talked and went through quite a thing because they said he had one of three incurable diseases. One was congenial leukemia, and a couple of others were incurable, and that he would die before he was a week old. And uh, so we did a lot of soul-searching, met with our uh, religious leader, a bishop, and others, and had them come down. We actually named him in the hospital, uh, blessed him, felt like we'd bless him to get better. He had some blood exchanges, and they gradually ruled out each one, and Within a couple of weeks, we took him home. Tell him about Heidi. She was the next one, the little girl. And we had, uh, when it was time for her to come, uh, it was still, she was about four weeks early. We followed the doctor to, to Provo. We went up there and had her at, at uh, Utah Valley Hospital, and uh, she came through it pretty well. We wanted a big family, but uh, we didn't know. And and anyway, we've, we've had others, and they've all had to be born after that. In the University of Utah, Bunny was the first woman to go through University of Utah Women's Health Center uh, with our babies. After each time, they'd say, would you like your tubes tied, is what they'd tell her. And uh, she'd say no, until after Eric was born, the doctors asked her, and you said? <laughs> it's time. <laughs> it's time. Before that, she always said, there's one more up in heaven. There's still another one. I can't, you know, no, I don't want it. There's another one. But after this, she says, that, that's the last one. We, we stopped at that point and feel very fortunate to have had six wonderful children and now 15 grandchildren.
Yeah, and to us, you know, we're happy that these kids are religious. They follow, uh, you know, what they've been taught. They've been raised by a um, a mother that has not only been caring and still does care and watches over them, but does exactly what mothers do, nurture their children and grandchildren. And uh, I'll let you tell you her story uh, of the rest of her education because I was so proud of her. I stayed home and raised the kids up until our youngest one was uh, just ready to go to kindergarten, and I decided to go back to college. And uh, three of my kids were going to the college at the same time, so there was Dusty, Jeff, and Heidi and I that went together. And it was fun because I was able to take classes with each one of my kids at different times. And it um, took me a little longer, but I finally graduated from Dixie. And uh, the fun part about it was Danny was on the stand, and he was able to hand me my diploma. So that and made it. And your kids. I was able to give my also. kids and give my wife a big hug. She was the only child that went through school, but she graduated from Dixie College with her children many years after she had attended before and, and did so well. Like I say, she's, a, she's an amazing person. She's my, my hero. You're my hero, too. These interviews were recorded at StoryCorps, a national initiative to record and collect stories of everyday people. Excerpts were selected and produced by Utah Public Radio. Support for StoryCorps on Utah Public Radio comes from Dixie Regional Medical Center, located on two campuses in St. George, serving southwestern Arizona, southeastern Nevada, and southern Utah. Information at DixieRegional.org. Utah is a production of Utah Public Radio. You can listen to this episode or previous episodes of Access Utah anytime at upr.org, where you can find a link to subscribe to our podcast. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 89.5 Logan, KUSK HD1 88.5 Vernal, KUSL HD1 89.3 Richfield, KUST HD1 88.7 Moab, and KUSU FM HD1 91.5 Logan. Thank you.